Hey everyone, it's Krista Bontrager and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go! We're going to finish out the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be starting in chapter 12 and going all the way to the end. We'll be doing the entire book of 2 Corinthians and the entire book of Galatians. We're going to hit a few highlights this week as we prepare for this week's reading. It's going to be fairly simple and straightforward in some sense, but the book of 2 Corinthians could present some challenges for us, so we'll want to be prepared for that. First off, though, I wanted to say a few words about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, I love to teach on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's just read the first few verses of chapter 15 together, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold to it firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one who is abnormally born. There's just such richness here. I wish I had an hour just to talk about this part of chapter 15. But one thing to point out is this word gospel. And when I talk to high school students, especially those who have been raised in the church, they, they really don't know what the gospel is. They've heard this term their whole lives, but they really don't have a firm grasp on an understanding and a, a basic definition of the gospel. And it's important to understand that from a biblical point of view, what the gospel is. And the gospel is that, that top level of meaning that we've been talking about all year, starting way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that it is that story of redemption. We often, as Protestants, think of the gospel as, we'll say this in his prayer, and you have this certain belief in, in Jesus, he died, and he, he forgave your sins, and, and that's it. But really, from a biblical point of view, the gospel is a, the good news. It's a story. It's the story of God's redemption plan, his work in history to bring about the Messiah. It's everything that we've been talking about on the podcast this year. And so what is that good news? That, that God promised a, a Messiah. He worked through history to preserve a people, the Jews. He brought the Messiah into the world. And then this Messiah, the Christ, as it says in verse 3, died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day. That is the gospel. The gospel is a series of historical events, God intervening in the lives of his people to bring about their salvation. 
And if we hold firmly to this story, the truthfulness of this story, this history that we have, then we will have a hope of eternal life with Jesus. So we want to be careful when we talk about the gospel that it's not just a mere theological belief. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. It's more than that. It's a story and it involves us and how we are part of that story. We have become part of God's story and his working in history and that we are to share that story with others. That is the good news. It is that God has sent a savior in history. Now, apparently some in the Corinthian church were having trouble believing in the resurrection. Some in their congregation were passing away and they were confused about whether they would see these people again. And so remember, the theology in the epistles is often occasional. It's prompted by an occasion, a situation that must be addressed. And so that's what Paul is saying here. But notice again, what Paul says, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What Paul is saying here is that our hope is bound in our history. Our theology is linked and rooted in the accuracy of the biblical story. If these stories in the Bible never happened, then our hope for salvation and to be saved from our sins is really just mythology. It's in, and it's, it's not a real hope. It's not founded in reality. It's more like wishing upon a star. We should be pitied that we would give our lives to, to someone who wasn't real. And this is such an important point because sometimes I hear Christians say, well, it's okay if if there's mistakes in the Bible and if some of these stories aren't true because they still have spiritual value, that they can still instruct our lives. And yet that's not how the Bible presents itself. The Bible presents itself as real history, God breaking into real history, doing certain things in history to bring about the salvation of his people including you and I. Our hope of heaven is bound up in the historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus never was resurrected, we have no hope for the resurrection. That link between theology and history is unbreakable. Our faith is not blind faith. It is not based on no evidence. Rather, the Christian faith is intimately hooked into and dependent upon the reality and the facts of history. And 1 Corinthians 15 stands as, I think, a very clear teaching on that point. When we turn to 2 Corinthians, although it's the same church, it's a little bit like turning on a television program right in the middle of the show. 
It's very complicated. People are talking. Things are happening. We're not altogether sure who the characters are, what the plot is, or what's going on. Even though we've just read the book of 1 Corinthians, which is to the same church, it still seems like there's a lot of chaotic things happening there. But the thread that sort of binds the two books together is this overriding kind of relational tension between Paul and the church in Corinth. There's a sense in which they are still questioning his true apostleship and and Paul himself, I think, is even wondering whether they're going to take this this correction from him in the first book and how they will take it to heart. And then they're grappling with that in the second book. Now, one thing important to note as you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 1 to 9 are a unit where Paul is, is one of his main concerns is about the collection of money for the poor in Jerusalem. But then something happens between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Apparently, Titus takes the letter to the Corinthian church and then has now returned to Paul. And he is kind of responding to the report from Titus about how the church is doing. So it's almost like what happened is that the book of 2 Corinthians is two letters put together and and combined into one. So chapters 1 to 9 is one unit and chapters 10 to 13 is a second unit written sometime later. So keep that in mind as you read. Then we move into the book of Galatians. And once again, it's important in setting the stage for any epistle to understand what is the conversation What is the occasion that led to this book? And thankfully, we have a little bit of of information about that in the book of Galatians, more so than in some of the epistles. But what's happened here is that this is really kind of a, a heated argument with the Gentile Galatian believers against some Jewish Christian missionaries who are insisting that the Gentiles be circumcised if they are to be included as full members and full partners, full participants in the people of God. This is very similar to the problem we saw back in the book of Acts, especially that was dealt with in Acts chapter 15. And so this book of Galatians happens probably sometime shortly after that. It's a fairly early book. Some scholars even think it could be as early as like 47, 48 AD, possibly up to 55 AD. But these Gentile believers in Galatia are really confused and they don't know who they're supposed to be listening to. And they seem to be sliding into uh, a mindset of that they need to become Jews if they really want to be the people of God. And Paul comes out with guns blazing against this era, against these kind of theological agitators that have come into the church in Galatia. And it's interesting here that we also get a little bit more backstory on some conversations between Peter and Paul. They weren't always in in agreement and that there were some issues that, that Paul felt like Peter was kind of backsliding, backtracking on things that he had said in the past and about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul was kind of calling him out on it. I like it that, that Paul comes out right away in chapter 1. And he says in verse 6, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And so what is this gospel? It is, again, this message of the historical facts about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And then how are those historical works theologically applied to our life? Well, it is through faith or belief that we trust in that historical event as having impact and satisfying God's wrath, the Father's wrath toward us and our sins. And yet the problem is, is that there's still confusion among the Jews about whether these Gentile converts need to become Jews first. And it's understandable to me why they would be confused. After all, it seemed that God had been operating a certain way for thousands of years under the, the Mosaic law. That was the expression of, of how they knew how to be connected to God, how to worship God. And now here comes something that looks a little different, but it's the same God empowering this, these prophets and, and these apostles. And so they're, they're trying to make sense of everything. So it's understandable that there was this confusion in the early church. So it has to get worked out. And this is how church history has always worked. And we see this from the beginning. Theological controversies come up. Great minds get together and discuss the theology and they dig into scripture and they try to figure out what was Jesus saying? What were the early, early apostles saying? And then they try to figure out how to resolve the matter. Now, we need to be careful not to fall into the error of saying that the Jews believed in salvation by works. Jews were never saved by works. We learned that back in the book of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 4. Abraham was saved by faith. So we don't want to make the, the mistake of thinking that Old Testament salvation is by works. New Testament salvation is by faith. Salvation has always been by faith. The works were manifest. They were an outgrowth of the people of God and how they were obeying God and showing, displaying their relationship with God, their covenant connection to God. And it's the same for us today. The problem was that these Jews wanted to make the law, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, part of the new covenant. That is the error. And so we need to keep that really clear in our minds. How do we have favor with God? Is it grace or the gospel of Jesus, the works of Jesus, plus the Mosaic law? Is that how we get favor of God? Or is it simply by grace alone through faith alone? That's not to say that works aren't in the picture at all. It's just it's not what saves us. The works come out of our gratitude as we live out before God in obedience, being holy, just as God called the ancient Israelites, be holy as I am holy. 
God calls his people today to be holy. But the difference is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is talking about in chapter 5 of Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit. This is the Christian version of the law, if you will. How do we live out the holiness that God wants his people to have? We are patient. We are kind. We have self-control. We are gentle. We are good toward each other. We are filled with faithfulness. These are the laws for the Christian. And what's interesting is that they're not merely external laws, but they are internal laws. They're more about our motivations and our heart attitudes. They're much more difficult than merely having a list of do's and don'ts and kind of checking a bunch of boxes. When you get into how God wants his people to express their holiness in the new covenant, it is much more about the attitudes of the heart. Or as Jesus said in the book of Mark, he said that it's what comes out of the heart that makes someone unclean. And so the the new covenant law, the law of Christ is about love. And love is part of the law. It is a summary of the law. It's not gospel, it's law. So how are we to live? We have God's law written on our hearts, according to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. And our heart attitudes are should be transformed more and more as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We become more and more like Christ. The book of Galatians is a wonderful book. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And it's the gospel in the Christian life, kind of all in one nice little container. Six chapters, really easy to get into. I love the book of Galatians. It is definitely one of my favorite epistles, probably second only to the epistle of Ephesians, which is where we'll be headed next week. So stay faithful. Grace family, we're in the home stretch. We're getting ever closer. Don't drop out of the race as we near the finish line. Now's the time to finish strong. Encourage one another in the Lord as we do this good thing together. Let's all hold hands and go across the finish line together. We're in it all together as a family. And that's what's so wonderful about Route 66. We'll see you next week. Thanks and God bless.